He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even so we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our time of study today. Our Father, we're so thankful that we just had this opportunity with these families to remind all of us of our parental and grandparental responsibilities in training up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That responsibility is so great, and we do pray for them that you would strengthen them and that uh, there would be a great spiritual blessing in the lives of those kids. Father, we're thankful for our so great salvation. And Father, we're thankful for what you have revealed to us in your word, that beyond salvation there is such a tremendous spiritual life that you have provided for us in this church age. And sadly, we barely scratch the surface of your teaching in the word. Help us as we grapple with what we have been studying in Ephesians 2. Help us to understand even more the significance of our church age spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we're looking at what the Bible teaches about the ascension and the session of Christ. And today I knew it would be short because of the dedication and also because of the luncheon afterwards. So we're going to do a review and just hit a couple of high points before we uh, go on to have our uh, Christmas and Thanksgiving meal. In Ephesians 2.6, Paul is getting at the heart of these first 10 verses. In verse verse uh, 4, he says, that but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And then he tells us three things that God did for us in his mercy. That he that he gave us new life together and that he raised us up together and that he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And last time I said this is important because it's emphasizing the uniqueness of the church age where Jew and Gentile are united together in Christ. And that truth has to be exploited in our thinking. And we have been made alive together in Christ. And now we read that we, he has made us sit together in the heavenly places. We've been raised together, and 
we are made to sit together. This is our position in Christ. And so just to review this chart, this relates to eternal realities, our legal position before God. At the instant that we trust in Christ, Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And at that instant, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, according to Romans 6, 3 through 6, and what is called the baptism by the Holy Spirit. That's the uh, corrected translation, an improved translation of the Greek preposition there. It's by means of the Holy Spirit. It is Christ who uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection. At that instant, we are given new life. We're made alive together with him. This is what the Bible teaches about regeneration. At that same time, we are adopted. New life, we become new creatures in Christ. We're adopted into God's royal family with a new identity and new responsibilities. We become a new creature, a new creation of Christ. We are freed from the power, but not the presence of the sin nature. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free so that we can live for God. We're given this new life. It needs to be nourished. It needs to be fed. We need to grow and mature. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit as God's possession so that we know that we can never lose that salvation. We are his, and we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Nobody in all of history prior to the day of Pentecost described in Acts 2 was ever personally indwelt by the Holy Spirit the way you and I are. There were Old Testament ministries of the Holy Spirit, and they were to provide wisdom and skill for the leadership of Israel, whether it was priest or prophet or king. But it was not permanent, although there are maybe two or three examples where God the Holy Spirit had a permanent ministry, but it was not in relation to their spiritual life or spiritual growth, but was in relation to their function and their responsibilities in the theocratic kingdom of Israel. Now, when we come to Ephesians 2.6, we talked about what it means to be raised together and that that brings to the forefront what Paul teaches in Romans 6, 3 through 6, that, that when this raising together emphasizes the new life and we are to live in light of that new life and not live as we were before we were saved, but the, because the old man, everything we were before we were saved, the old man is dead and we have new life in him. And then we have this phrase, we've been made, uh, he's made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. And I found at least these 13 references to Christ's session. That's the technical term for his being seated. And he's always portrayed again and again through Scripture. In fact, as we read through Hebrews, it's the first chapter of Hebrews that is the introduction to the epistle to the Hebrews, which is the great exposition of Christ's current priesthood, his role as our priest and advocate before the Father. And if you read through Hebrews 1, the introductory chapter, the introductory first three verses end with the statement that he has been seated 
at the right hand of the Father. And then you go to the last chapter, in uh, the last verse in that chapter, and it concludes it with he has been seated at the right hand of the Father. That opening introduction is bracketed by two statements emphasizing the current position of Christ as seated at the right hand of the Father. He's not seated on David's throne. He is seated on the Father's throne. And he will not be seated on his throne until he returns at the second coming. But that opening chapter of Hebrews is the foundation for the rest of that epistle. And it doesn't make sense if we don't understand Christ's current position as seated at the right hand of the Father. In our study of Ephesians, we have seen that this is emphasized throughout this epistle. It's introduced in Ephesians 1.20 that uh, after God raised him from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is expanded on again in verse 6 of our chapter, which is what we are studying. And then Paul returns to this theme in Ephesians 4, 8 through 11. Christ had to ascend to heaven to send the Holy Spirit and to distribute spiritual gifts for the edification of the church that we can't understand the purpose and function of spiritual gifts in the local church if we have a weak understanding of the session. And so it was necessary for Christ to ascend to heaven. And this is what I focused on last, not last time as we began to talk about what the Bible teaches about the ascension and session of Christ. Last time we looked at the question, why did Christ have to ascend? And we're continuing to answer that uh, this morning, as we look at the second aspect, one of the most important aspects of the the ascension is so that he could send the Holy Spirit. So we are looking at the ascension of Christ still. Last time we looked at the background and trying to understand what happened with God's plan when Jesus Christ was rejected as king and when he was then arrested and crucified. What happened to God's plan. In Acts chapter 1, we come to the time of the ascension. I don't think the apostles understood exactly what was going to happen that day on the Mount of Olives. They had been with Jesus since the uh, since his resurrection. He had been teaching them. He had been training them. And they didn't still didn't quite grasp everything that was happening. And at that time, they realized that that Jesus uh, hadn't fulfilled their expectations in the sense of bringing the kingdom. The kingdom was not there. And so they come, and as they are gathered with the Lord on the Mount of Olives, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Their, Their whole thinking is still very much the Old Testament, that The promise and prediction in the Old Testament was that the Messiah would come and he would establish his kingdom and that that kingdom would be a literal geophysical kingdom centered in Jerusalem with the Messiah on the ruling throne of David. And this hasn't happened. That was what they expected Jesus to provide, and this hasn't happened. Now, the other thing that I find interesting here 
is that if you look at the life of Jesus on the earth up to the ascension, there were a lot of questions that the apostles asked. This is the last question. That is significant. This is the last question. And does Jesus answer it? He doesn't verbally answer it, but he gives them an answer. He leaves. He ascends to heaven. He is demonstrating to them the answer is that, nope, it's not the time. I'm out of here. I'm gone. I am ascending to the Father's right hand where I'm going to sit down, a position not of active rulership, but a position where he is waiting, as we will see. And so last time we saw that the problem that the disciples and all of the Jews had is that the way they interpreted the Old Testament, they expected a one coming Messiah and that he would come and he would uh, he would free them from the tyranny of the Romans and then establish his kingdom. They understood it to be a literal kingdom on the earth. But what they wanted was the crown before the cross. They looked at the glories predicted of the Messiah, and they conveniently ignored the suffering of the Messiah. They wanted to have uh, the crown before the cross rather than the cross before the throne. But they had this clear expectation of a kingdom so that when John the Baptist showed up and he's preaching out in the wilderness, he had a specific message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, he didn't redefine the kingdom. At no point in any of the four Gospels do you see a redefinition of the kingdom. He assumed that his listeners knew exactly what he was talking about and that this was the kingdom that was prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. Now, the word kingdom is used in two different senses in the Scripture. It's used first of the universal sovereign kingdom of God. In the Psalms, we read them talk about God reigning. He is the creator God. He reigns over his creation. He reigns over the universe. That is one sense in which God is said to be king. But there is a different sense in which that word is used. Here is a dispensational timeline. We have creation in Eden on the far left. And then this marks the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and then the cross here after the end of the age of Israel, followed by the church age, the tribulation, the millennium, and into eternity. In Eden, there was the theocratic kingdom. Now, that's a word that comes from the word theocracy, the rule of God. God is the king over his creatures who created in his image and likeness in the Garden of Eden. He is personally ruling. He's personally present there in the Garden And then after the sin of Adam and Eve, they are expelled from the garden, but the garden is still there, paradise is still there, and this is still God's headquarters on the earth. We see that that disappears after the flood, but then when we get to Mount Sinai and the law, God gives them descriptions for uh, constructing the tabernacle, And inside of the tabernacle, there's the holy place and then the holy of holies. And at the centerpiece of the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. On the mercy seat, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant are two cherubs. And this is stated again and again to be the throne of God. 
So we have another another manifestation of God in the age of Israel in the theocratic. But at the same time, there are prophets who come and predict a future messianic divine kingdom. Again and again, of the uh, expectation of Israel, it is hinted at by the Abrahamic covenant. It is further developed in the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then uh, the new covenant. But there is something that happens that was unexpected in the Old Testament. There's this pause, and there's what is referred to as an interregnum, where there is no continuation of this theocratic kingdom, although God does have a presence on the earth. He indwells every believer. This interregnum is going to end at the second advent when the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Messianic king will come to the earth as the king of kings and lord of lords and establish his kingdom on the earth. This is why the ascension was necessary. The millennial kingdom will last for 1,000 years, then go on into eternity in the eternal theocratic kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. So John's message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus began to preach, he preached repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when he sent out his disciples, he told them not to go to the Gentiles because the message isn't for them. The message is for the Jews. And their message was in verse 7, the kingdom repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again and again, that was the message, but something happened. They offered the kingdom... But the king was rejected. You follow this pattern in every gospel. The king is rejected. And so then Christ began to teach in terms of parables to sort of hide the truth from those who were opposed to him. And there is a degradation of his uh, relationship with with the Jews, and they eventually crucify him. So the ascension comes after that. And its purpose has to do with this unforeseen inter-advent age, the present church age. In John six sixty-two and 63, we read Jesus saying, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. In this first statement in verse 62, Jesus refers to himself with his most favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. This term comes from Daniel chapter 7. I'm not going to take the time to go there. We will in the next few lessons. But in this heavenly vision of the future, Daniel sees the kingdoms of man manifested as these beastly empires, ruling tyrannically over mankind. And then it comes to this end-time kingdom. And it is during this time that God pours forth his judgment on the earth. God is pictured as the Ancient of Days. And then one comes before the Ancient of Days in his throne. It is the Son of Man. He has been waiting. He's been seated at the right hand of the Father, and he says he requests the kingdom, and the Father gives him the kingdom, and then he comes to the earth. And so when Jesus says this, he talks about the Son of Man ascending. He's already hinting at the fact that he's going to leave and ascend to heaven, and he's going where he was before. 
before he came to the earth, before that first Christmas, before the first advent, he goes back to where he had been for eternity in his in his deity. And he also connects to this the idea of the spirit. It's just a, a, a very vague hint. It is not expanded upon until we get into the upper room discourse in John chapter 16. And there Jesus said to his disciples, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His presence with the Father was where he was before, and now he is going to return. And what we learn is he returns to sit at the right hand of the Father, but now he's different. He is now the Son of Man. He is 100% humanity and 100% deity. He's fully God and fully man. And so he who sits at the right hand of the Father is now true humanity. And he is elevated to a position over the authority of all of the angels and over everything in all of God's creation. Now, as this eternal second person of the Trinity... He always had been in authority over everything. So that emphasis of his new authority is an emphasis of his authority over everything as a man, as a human. And so he goes to the Father. And then he says in verse 7 in that chapter, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart... I will send him to you. It was necessary for Jesus to ascend to the Father so that he could send another comforter, referring to himself as the first and one like him, the Holy Spirit. In fact, what we see in this church age is that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ are personally indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. This is taught in several passages, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, some think this refers to the church because of plural pronouns. But Paul uses plural pronouns from from chapter 1 all the way through to refer to the congregation. I may say, y'all need to pray every day, and I don't mean as a group. I mean each and every one of you need to be praying every day. But because I'm addressing a group, I will use a second-person plural pronoun. So all of these passages use a second-person pronoun. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body, obviously he's talking about individuals, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Romans 8.9 but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed, and he uses a first-class condition indicating if, and this is true, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit of God dwells in you. Romans 8.10, he goes on to say, and if Christ is in you, so not only are we indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, but we are indwelt by the Son. If Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So the first thing that we see is that the ascension is necessary to send the Holy Spirit. 
the ascension takes place because Christ has been rejected as the king, and so the kingdom is postponed until he returns, and an unexpected era or age intervenes, the church age. And this church age has distinctive characteristics for each and every believer and for our spiritual life. And therefore, we must understand this. We must learn what it means that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and what it means to walk by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the uh, sine qua non, the without which nothing of the Christian life. He is the basis for the Christian life. He is the one who regenerates us, and he is the one who who gives empowers us, and he is the one who enables us to live the spiritual life because it is not simply a life of morality. The spiritual life of the church age is a supernatural way of life that demands a supernatural uh, presence of God the Holy Spirit enabling us and empowering us to live that spiritual life. So this is the first of several reasons why Christ had to ascend to heaven. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, and after we sing a hymn, then I am going to uh, ask Greg Freehoff if he would please come up and then uh, dismiss us in closing prayer and also pray, pray for the food, give thanks for the food as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that we have your word to tell us what happened when Jesus ascended its significance, its purpose, his presence now at your right hand as our advocate and as our high priest, that there he is praying for us as our intercessor and that he is the one who is waiting to be given the kingdom promised in the Old Testament. He, as the Son of Man, awaits uh, for the distribution of the title to the earth so that he can return at the end of the tribulation, to defeat the forces of Satan, the kings of the earth, and to establish his kingdom. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here today or anyone listening who may not understand your free gift of salvation, that your salvation is offered freely to one and all, and we're encouraged to come and drink freely, for there is no cost that we are to trust in Christ. He is the one who paid the penalty. It cost you, it cost the son, but it cost us nothing. You provided a son to, your son to die on the cross and to pay for our sins in full so that all that is necessary for us is to believe and trust in Christ as our Savior, the one who died for us, who rose from the dead, and who gives us new life. Father, we're thankful for the last year. We're thankful for uh, the presence of the uh, Korean church, our fellowship together, our time together as we celebrate all of the many good things you have done for us this last year, and especially the greatest thing you have done for us in giving us your son, whose birth we celebrate at this time of year. And Father, we ask your, um, we, we close out. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.